When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. Hey, what's up, everybody? Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Welcome back to the show. This is an episode that many of you have been waiting for. Well, specifically the intro to this episode because, as I mentioned on a few earlier episodes, today is the day we announce the winner of the Pine Ridge Grouse Camp giveaway. I have the winner's name written down on a little piece of paper in front of me, and I will announce that. In just a moment, many of you completed the survey in order to enter the Pine Ridge Grouse Camp giveaway. We appreciate that. We thank you for your support of the Project Upland podcast, the website, Project Upland brand, Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. We appreciate all of you, and we thank you for submitting your entry into the Pine Ridge Grouse Camp giveaway. A couple of fun facts that we got from the survey. As you know, we did the survey. We will be using that data for various Project Upland projects going forward. And I thought I would uh, just mention a couple of little things that we've we've gleaned and pulled out of the survey data so far. Uh, 30% of our audience did not grow up in a hunting family, which is huge because as we are thinking about hunter recruitment and retention, those are the people that we're trying to trying to reach. A lot of the people that I speak to on this podcast, including myself, really had an easy kind of an open door into hunting and not everybody had that. So to see that 
percent of our audience uh, survey respondents did not grow up in a hunting family. Very cool. A few other ones I'll run through briefly. 83% of our audience always hunts with a dog. That's, that's pretty cool. But again, as we know from talking to some of our guests and, and from experiences, a dog is not necessarily to hunt upland birds, but it's certainly a popular way to do it. 42% of our audience owns two or more dogs. That's cool. Once you, once you, once you get that first dog, it's, it doesn't take you long to, to find out that more dog power is, is oftentimes better. Uh, so I'm, I, I only have one dog, but, but I'm certainly looking forward to that, that next one and, and always thinking about it and planning it. Shotgun of choice, 47% over under. I don't think I'm surprised by that at all. 27% side by side. That's pretty cool. Uh, now, 19% semi-automatic and 7% pump. So I suppose we have to remember that being that this is a Project Upland survey, we sort of have our own bias and filter on it in that a certain type of person is attracted to Project Upland and the content that we produce. So naturally, we're kind of biasing our own survey, which it is what it is that you can't, can't do anything about it. But 47% of our users over under 27% side by side. Hey, that's cool. I'm all for it. Love double guns. And I, I personally prefer hunting upland birds that way, but 20% semi-automatic and 7% pump. And for the gauges, the last thing I'll mention, 46% of our survey respondents use a 20 gauge. Probably not a surprise. 20 gauge, very popular upland gun, effective, effective round, effective gauge, and roughly half of our survey respondents are using it. So second place, 12 gauge, 32%, 16 gauge coming in at 13%, and the snappy and effective little 28 gauge, 8% of our survey respondents. So a couple fun facts for you. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thank you again for filling out that survey. And now, the moment that everybody's been waiting for. I do not have a drum roll. I'm not going to fake one. The winner of the Project Upland Podcast Pine Ridge Grouse Camp giveaway is Chandler Cook of Texas. Those are the details that I have in front of me. Chandler Cook of Texas. If you're listening to this, congratulations, buddy. You are heading to Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Now, for everybody else that's disappointed... Sorry, you couldn't all be winners. I wish you could, but you can still go to Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. You know where to find them, pinerichgrousecamp.com. Check out all their stuff and, and the stuff that we've been doing on projectupland.com. Chandler, you're going to have a blast there. Maybe Jerry will even let me uh, come up and hang out with you that weekend. Whatever weekend you choose, the fall of 2018, Chandler Cook is going to Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. So again, thanks everybody for completing the survey. We appreciate you. And stay tuned on the Project Upland podcast because we will have more giveaways and more fun stuff just like that coming in the future. Now, moving on quickly to today's episode. Before we dive into the interview, I just want to mention uh, two of our promo codes from, from previous guests' episodes. Gumleaf Boots, we're still doing the Project Upland promo code. That promo code is PU2017, PU2017. Gum leaf boots. We've got spring training, field trialing, uh, all that stuff coming right around the corner. There's no better time to, to hop into a pair of gum leaf boots. Check them out, gumleafusa.com. Free shipping using promo code PU2017. And the shot cam. 
If you don't know what the shot cam is, check out episode, I'm going to go off the top of my head, number 19, possibly, with Emily Stewart, uh, sales marketing business development at shot cam, the most powerful shotgun camera in the world. I saw some more videos of somebody using it on Facebook this week, and uh, again, this camera, it's its just crazy. It's uh, It give, gives you such a clear image of uh, whatever you're shooting, birds, clay, it's really, really neat. If you haven't heard of it, check it out. And if you have heard of it and you're interested in one, we're going to help you out with a little promo code thanks to the good people at ShotCam. I don't have one. I wish I did. I would love to have a ShotCam. I do not have one right now. But if you want to order one, use promo code Project Upland. That's all one word, Project Upland. Get you $75 off your purchase at ShotCam. Check them out, ShotCam.com. You'll love it. Okay, we're going to jump right into today's interview. Today, you will be hearing from Art Wheaton, the author of the recently released Grouse Country, his first book. It's called Grouse Country, Gunning with the Old Pat Society. Art Wheaton is a character of characters. He's a very, very neat guy. He's been grouse hunting for 50 plus years. He worked for Remington. He's associated with the the Parker Gun Collectors Association. I think he's going into their Hall of Fame. I mean, this guy, he lives, breathes upland bird hunting, especially grouse and woodcock hunting, but he's done all sorts of stuff. We cover we cover Parker shotguns. We talk about grouse hunting. We talk about grouse dogs. We talk about Pine Ridge Grouse Camp because he's been known to hang out there every once in a while. And we talk about the bad bunch. Those are Art's words. The bad bunch that is the old Pat Society and the group of, of friends that he gets together with and, and hunts with. And it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the interview, and I think you're going to love it. Let's welcome to the Project Upland podcast, Art Wheaton. Well, Mr. Art Wheaton, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. How are you doing this evening, sir? I'm doing terrific, terrific. Uh, it's it's wonderful in North Carolina, and... Uh, and the weather is a little rainy, but not bad. So North uh, Carolina. I haven't, oh, go ahead. No, I haven't seen any grouse in my backyard. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was recalling from our conversation last week. You were down that way. I couldn't remember if it was North Carolina or South Carolina. Now, when you say you haven't seen any grouse in your backyard, is that in jest, or are you actually in an area where you could have them? In jest. Uh, Interestingly enough, we have some turkeys right right here. I'm close to uh, just in a suburb of Greensboro, North Carolina, and we have a fair number of turkeys and deer that regularly patrol in our in our little uh, area here. But the grouse in North Carolina would be more in the mountains out around Asheville or something like that. So it's it's a whole different topography here. Sure. Yeah, and th- and I know uh, we'll 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 certainly get into this, but I know that you've you've done an extensive amount of grouse hunting in the northern part of the country. But have you or do you do you do some grouse hunting down in the Carolinas at all? You know, I have not. Uh, I have not. My opportunities uh, are really have been pretty well focused uh, in the, in the Northeast, the, the Midwest, and where everybody knows the grouse are prevalent. I have not hunted uh, in, like, uh, West Virginia uh, with some folks that I know over there on the Appalachians, but it's always been up in the north, 
having been a pretty much a Yankee by birth, I grew up with it. And uh, as an old friend of mine used to say, if you want to find birds, go where they are. That sounds like that sounds like pretty good advice, Art. Yeah, well, I think I think that's a, I think that's a good segue, and and I think we'll start there. I've I've uh, been looking forward to this conversation. I've I've been a, a reader of of some of your material, not all of it. You you write regularly in in the Rough Grouse Society magazine and and some other publications, and of course you recently published published uh, your your is it your first book, Grouse Country? My my first book, yes. Okay, so you maybe my last. <laughs> yes, yes, maybe. Well, well, it's uh, I, I haven't haven't uh, haven't had the chance to read it yet personally, but I was I was uh, checking out doing some research and and I saw some wonderful comments in the uh, the Parker's Gun Collectors Association forum and and I've heard good things. So we'll we'll certainly talk about that. But before we get to Art Wheaton writing his first book, let's rewind and talk about a, a young Art Wheaton or whenever it was that. That you started upland bird hunting, grouse hunting, whatever it may be. Where where were your roots, and where were your upland hunting beginnings? Well, uh, probably probably my first introduction was uh, in high school. Uh, I, I grew up in a very rural community, very small town. My dad was a main guide for sixty eight years, and. Uh, my introduction was basically asking my dad if I could borrow the gun and take a walk up a woods trail behind the house. And in those days, uh, at the local pine tree store, uh, you were buying shells by the each. And I know that sounds strange to a lot of people, but, uh, people didn't have a lot of money and, uh, you'd go down and get a handful of shells. And I remember my dad handing me just that, four or five shells, and you were expected to come back with something. And uh, I know in this day and age, it's a, a sensitive subject about young people having guns, but my, well, I grew up with them. You know, they were, they were in our home. My dad was a, a hunter and a guide. And uh, when I asked him if I could uh, kind of go hunting, behind our house, he said, uh, okay. He said, but you can't take anybody with you. He said, that's an absolute strict rule. You go by yourself. And, uh, he knew inherently that trouble would, would likely come along if there were people involved, other people involved. So I would come home from school and uh, my father had an old 1897 Winchester outside hammer gun. Actually, it was a duck gun. Hmm. And uh, he would let me borrow it. Uh, so I'd take a walk up behind the house. And, you know, you'd get home around 3.30, 4 o'clock. So you didn't have a lot of time, maybe an hour to hunt. And you'd hunt along the trails. You still hunted. And that's something a lot of folks don't even, it doesn't even occur to them, but you walk a little and listen. And oftentimes you'd find a bird <clears throat> sneaking out of the, out of the, the side of a trail. <clears throat> and it just happened to me just like that. Uh, the first bird I was able to, to uh, take a look at popped out of the 
popped out of the woods and up on a rock, or actually up on a stump. And uh, that that began began his bad day. <laughs> so uh, that was my first trophy. And I took him home, and uh, I said in my book, I said it might as well have been an elephant, because <laughs> I was pretty I was pretty proud to bring that bring that bird home, and because I mean it was table fair, so so were a lot of game. It was table fair. It wasn't a matter of you know the sporting part of it in terms of flushing birds. It was a matter of getting game and that was just as exciting so that probably was my first experience and over time as i grew older you know my grandfather had a 16 gauge uh, parker shotgun that he would let me also carry but but we we really didn't know too much about hunting birds with dogs uh, and so that's that's how i grew up just uh able to sneak up on them, catch them unawares, if you will. And uh, in due time, it became less the need to have to have the game, but more the experience of trying to wing shoot a bird. And that probably happened a little later on. So yeah. it, uh, it, you know, I think growing up in that rural environment uh, is is probably something that a lot of young people are not acquainted with today. So that was the early beginnings, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think your story is probably, it's probably, you know, maybe certainly different than, than the younger generations growing up today, but Interestingly enough, it sounds a lot like my beginnings as as a grouse hunter. I, I, you know, it's funny you mentioned you you coined it still hunting, and I guess I've never really called it that. But I, I, I hunted grouse a long time without a dog, and I did the exact same thing that you did. I would walk trails slowly, quietly, and you know, ultimately you're trying to make the grouse make the first move so you can get any sort of a leg up on them that you know we don't have with a dog. So it's it's interesting, but yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of parallels there for me and brings back some good memories. And it was, for me, it was always, it was always, the grouse was such a fascinating bird. And that's really what drove, drove my pursuit. Now you mentioned, you mentioned table fair, and that was certainly a, you know, an achievement for you, but what, did you have an immediate connection with the grouse? Do you think? I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I could put a finger on that. Uh, I, I think the still hunting was pretty much uh, a part of life because table fair was the goal. Still hunting for deer uh, in in the in the great north woods, uh, you could sit for a month in a deer stand and not not see a deer. But my dad and all of his close friends that were guides and whatnot, they still hunted. They walked through the woods very carefully, either on a trail, along a ridge, and they would stop and look and listen, stop, look and listen, and uh, that's the way they hunted, whether it be for moose, deer, you know, many of those those old-timers uh, shot a partridge, uh, as we call it, 
to heads off with their deer rifles. And, uh, you know, some of them had a shotgun. Uh, if they did, you know, they, they maybe shot a duck or two occasionally, but I mean, that's the way they lived. They, they, they didn't have a gun cabinet full of different varieties. They, they had one or two, they couldn't afford it. And uh, so it really became a way of life. My dad used to chide me uh, when I was a young man to say that his father would say, uh, there's a rabbit track. He says, your dinner is on the other end of it. And uh, he would often tell me about <clears throat> getting home from school himself and shooting three or four or five partridge out of a tree. And he did that with a with an old mongrel dog that they call Rags, and the dog would bark and run around, and the, and the, the grouse would fly up in the tree, and then they'd shoot them. <laughs> so I know that's very foreign to a lot of folks today, and, and, and some people would think that would be heresy. But it was a fact of life. They were looking for something for the table, and, and how did you achieve that? Um, and then over time, you you graduated to recognize that what a sport it really was to be able to take one on the wing. And thusly becomes a transition. You know, and I would argue today, if you were to take a young man out to hunt a, hunt a bird or a squirrel or something like that, is it more important for him to have some measure of success early on versus none at all? Because like breaking that first target on a, uh, a skeet range or a trap range, it leads you down a road of wanting to do it more and more. Nothing is more discouraging to have no success. So I would argue that, you know, hey, that, that's a part of life. Uh, would I encourage folks to do it today? Uh, I was confronted with a situation, my own grandson, you know, 11 years old, and you take him down a trail like that old trail that you used to go on mm-hmm. and with a little 410 and uh, uh, let him have a shot. That's pretty big medicine. Uh, and, uh, sometimes whether he connected or not, he will remember it, but you'd like to have him some measure of success. And then as you move along the path, you teach him the, the attributes of being able to take one on the wing. And I think eventually you come to that point in your life where you've taken a number of those birds on the wing and you recognize what a what a true, uh, experience it is. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's a short course that from my experience, um, I, I, I've shot a good number of birds all my life, but at this, at this point, I can be as happy to see someone else have that measure of success than, than my own. It's not 
hugely important that I do it, but it's very important to see somebody else get their first opportunity and, and, uh, shoot their first bird on the wing. Pretty big medicine. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that transition and and growth and development as a hunter certainly, certainly takes a different form. I think with, with each person and their own individual experiences, but as you mentioned that, you know, it's, it, it can kind of be on that, the mentor really to use, use their discretion to, you know, ensure, ensure that success early on. But then, you know, it, it doesn't, hopefully the mentoring doesn't end there. It, it continues and continues to develop and the, the sporting aspects, you know, begin to begin to show up and, and that young hunter develops an appreciation for the game and the sport, as you mentioned, it's, it's interesting how, well, how it does take place. I have, uh, I have in most recent two or three years had, uh, two young men and, uh, and another gentleman all shoot their first grouse along with me, uh, on a trip. And that, that's huge medicine. I mean, to use my words again, you, you might as well shoot an elephant, you know, that they, they made contact, uh, finally, uh, after, after so many tries or no, or no opportunities to finally get their first grouse. It's a big celebration. And um, they'll never forget it. They'll never forget it. I had a, a gentleman that had really not grown up in in the woods much, but later in life has uh, really been addicted to the, the outdoor sports. And I took him on a, on a uh, trip to the Adirondacks and um as it happened he borrowed a a really nice uh, a 20 gauge parker shotgun from a friend of mine and lo and behold if he wasn't able to kill his first grouse that afternoon hmm. well it wasn't a matter that he killed a limit nor was it a matter that he killed another one that day or anything else it was a big it was a wonderful day and uh hey, he'll never forget it so I think that's important. I think you know if if you get if you can get uh, connected to something like that, you'll be smitten. Um, it, it's it's such a it's such a wonderful sport, and you know the actual shooting is only part of it all. Yeah. You know the camaraderie and the guns and the dogs and the stories and you know. Sometimes it's the misses that you will remember more. Yep. Okay, Art. So when did the when did the when did the bird dogs enter the picture for you? You mentioned the the well. We when I was uh, at the time I was in high school, uh, uh, we we had a, a bird dog a setter. Uh, I never learned to hunt with her, and, and she left us early for some reason. Like that, but probably, you know, I was in my twenties, and uh, having uh, joined uh, America's oldest gunmaker, um, I got acquainted with a lot of people that that had bird dogs, and uh, that started it all. Um, one of the very first dogs I ever had was a little Springer Spaniel. And, uh, it, it was an interesting story because, 
a dear friend called one day and said, a friend of mine uh, has passed away and the family has a, has a Springer Spaniel. They're looking to find a home for it. And I, and he said, I, I thought maybe you might be interested in a dog. And as it turned out, I told him, I said, that would be great. And we drove to Fairfield, Connecticut on a Sunday afternoon to pick up the Springer Spaniel and uh, subsequently brought it home. But in the process, I wound up asking the proverbial question, did Mr. So-and-so have any guns that you're going to sell? And subsequently, a, a little Parker Trojan 20-gauge shotgun came out of the closet. <laughs> and and, it, and it, it went home with me. <laughs> of, co- of course, I was broke at the time, but uh, and my wife has yet to uh, have me forget that uh, all of the grocery money and the uh, washing machine money was spent on that shotgun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but anyway, that was our that was our first uh, first dog, uh, and subsequently have had some others uh, that came along. But probably in it, in it all, I had a fond affection for setters. We've had have had a good number of setters, um, and uh, have hunted them. I've had good ones, not so good ones, and and uh, like everybody does. Uh, but, uh, and, and that's, you know, hunting with a dog certainly is, uh, the epitome of the sport and to find one that can hunt grouse or, or point grouse is pretty special. They don't all get the hang of it. Um, later on, I, I had a good friend, uh, from Maine that had a, a wonderful setter, um, and they called him Woodrow. He was probably one of the best setters I ever saw uh, hunting grouse because he would uh, he could handle grouse uh, so well. And grouse would run, he'd move up a little bit, but never would crowd the bird, never would crowd the bird. And um, he, he was a, just a spectacular dog. But we don't all get not that opportunity. Some will do certain things well and some not so well just like people uh, I yeah. suppose a man if he's able to have one bird dog over his lifetime that's a good one he's very lucky yeah yeah I've heard things like that before you you mentioned the the dog Woodrow not not really you know crowd crowding grouse and that's that's certainly important but I'm, I'm curious you know for somebody that's that's spent you know 50 years in in the grouse woods and you've seen a lot of dogs is could you put your finger on something that you've seen certain dogs do that make them good grouse dogs or, or does it truly come down to sort of kind of an, more of an intangible nature? Well, it all starts with some pretty good nostrils, you know, and if, if, if he knows what that nose is telling him and then he also discerns that the bird is going to leave the scene of the accident pretty quickly. Uh, And he's able to grasp all of that. Uh, Then you've got the makings of a pretty good bird dog. Uh, There's some that have pieces of it and some that don't. Uh, But their ability to send a bird 
uh, a good distance away and to be able to uh, hold up quickly and not press that bird rather than crowd him, uh, the better off he's going to be. And, you know, I think a lot of your listeners have seen birds that can, I mean, dogs that can scent birds, but they oftentimes want to get a little close. And sometimes a great woodcock dog isn't often that great on grouse. They can be, but they may not be. There's something about that woodcock scent that is so intense and, and they can crowd it. They can crowd that bird a little bit and get away with it at times, but not so often with a grouse, uh, unless he hold up and he thinks that nobody can find him. And I, I've seen that happen where a bird, bird is, uh, hidden somewhere and uh, the dogs got fairly close to him. And, uh, just by luck, you have a chance to, to get up there. But, uh, the country dictates a lot of that. If, if the, if the underbrush and undergrowth is thick enough so that a bird can hide when he's moving through there versus trying to point a bird where it's open country, it, it's, it, that's a tough chore. That's a tough chore for any, any dog or any hunter to get a, get a bird to hold up. If he thinks he's exposed, he's not going to sit around. Yeah. yeah. And of course, yeah. if he's, yeah, and if he's a young guy, you know, he, he doesn't, uh, he hasn't got all the experience that those wise old birds do. Exactly. Okay. Well, you mentioned it a couple times, the Parker guns and Remington. Now, now you spent some time, you spent some time working for Remington. Uh, I guess you could, Maybe we maybe we should start there for a little bit. Talk about talk about what you what you did for Remington and sort of how that kind of fueled. Oh boy! Oh boy! I, yes, I I I spent uh, almost forty years with Remington, and uh, it it was a great career, a great career with great people and a great company, and uh, I started right out of college. After a short stint at uh, in the sands of New, New Jersey at Fort Dix, to arrive in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and uh, was hired by Remington and spent a whole career in a whole number of capacities in manufacturing and in sales, and ultimately I I was able to to uh, find a spot in senior management and retired there after about 36 years and then continued to consult with him for another five. So I, uh, I'm fairly biased with my green shells and Parker shotguns and model 1100 auto loaders and 870 pump guns. You know, you didn't dare shoot anything else. Sort of like driving into the GM parking lot with a Toyota. Not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a wonderful career and a great company, you know, and it afforded me an opportunity to live all across the country and back all the way from California, California back to the East Coast and see all parts of the country. But um, I think I think it, it allowed us to shoot the Parker shotgun only because Remington purchased Parker in 1934 
along with Peter's Cartridge Company, and that was somewhat somewhat uh, the legitimacy of it. But uh, as I've grown older, I think that uh, shooting grouse and woodcock probably deserves a gun with an American soul, whether that's a side-by-side of a Smith, Lefevre, or you name it, uh, or something of that sort. It's sort of a bias, but uh, it uh, it's always great fun to uh, to uh, carry a side by side. Uh, although I've shot a good many of them with a a good eleven hundred or or an eight seventy, and I'm sure and have hunted with with good friends with all everything from Purdy's to uh, McNaughton. So I, I've kind of seen the gamut and everybody will kind of gravitate to a favorite gun and whatever that favorite gun is makes the experience that much richer. It's, it's the same with a dog. I think it's a, uh, it's a package that ultimately gives you the greatest pleasure when you put it all together. Um, I suppose as some of us that have to put on those old leather boots and pull out the old marbles compass that pins on, even though they've got the GPS in the back pocket, they seem naked without those others. It, it seems part of the, uh, the uniform, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the... You, you mentioned that your grandfather had a he had a 16 gauge Parker. So you were working at Remington wasn't your first exposure to Parker. But would you when did you start? I, I guess I guess maybe I'm assuming that you have a few Parkers in your gun safe. But when did you start collecting them? If that assumption is correct, well, prob- probably accumulation is more than anything else. And uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, I suppose more by accident. Um, I, I kind of grew up like in that environment. My dad told me one time that, uh, an uncle of mine had two park, had a pair of Parker shotguns and, uh, that thought always stuck with me. And then my grandfather had a 16 gauge Parker, but those kind of, those were kind of interludes along the way. Uh, but later on, just prior to me joining Remington, I had spent some time with my father's brother and, uh, uh, to shorten up a long story, uh, one evening we walked down in his basement and we got talking about shotguns and walked down in his basement and there overhanging, uh, uh, up among the uh, floor joists was a Parker 12 gauge duck gun. And that was one of the guns that had be- belonged to my uncle. Uh, it subsequently went home with me and I still have it. <laughs> As they seem to do. And I still have it. And it took me a long time to realize that he had the, he had a 20 gauge that went along with it. And I didn't. I never knew it until he passed away, and he uh, 
he he gave it to somebody else, and I tracked it down. I've seen the gun. I know where it is. Uh, I've not been able to uh, take possession of it, but it, that's a long story. And the other story with the 16 gauge Parker uh, is, is somewhat interesting. My grandfather sold the gun. He sold it to uh, a local uh, game warden. And I, I never knew that. I didn't have any interest in it. But I went to college at the University of Maine. And, and uh, one day a fraternity brother and I was sitting and chatting about about guns and uh, shotguns. And uh, lo and behold, I learned that it was his father that was the game warden that bought the 16-gauge from my grandfather. No way. And it... And it took me 15 years to get that gun back. <laughs> and it, but you eventually did. Yeah, I eventually did, and I own it. I had to trade my way back into it, but yes, I I now own it. Um, so again, not to drag those stories out, but you know, it's uh, it's funny I, that I should get reacquainted with that gun, but. You know, storied guns have a, a sort of a, an attraction, yeah. and and that was one of them. I also have the little twenty gauge Trojan gun that came with a little Springer Spaniel. Yep. So, yeah, they they have some sentiment attached to them. So you found but that one. Was, oh, yeah, go sorry, ahead. Go ahead, Art. No, that that sort of led me down the trail of. Uh, of Parker guns, and then having spent a lot of time in field sales with Remington, I, w- I was able to visit more gun shops in this country than anybody will ever see, and subsequently was able to purchase a few guns along the way. But then later on, as time slips away and you accumulate a few, you know, I, I I became involved with the Parker Gun Collectors Association and that group of fellows, and subsequently were able to find a few other Parkers. So um, the stories we could go all night and, uh, <laughs> and probably fill our glasses a few times. But that was the start of it. I never, I never intended to own all the Parkers in the world, but I have a few that are. Fairly nice guns, and well, uh, I, I now I now hunt with it. Yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, like you say, you know, they've they've each they've each got a they've each got their own story, and 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 they are interesting. Yeah. And I I was going to ask you about when you when you take to the woods these days, are you are you one that likes to sort of spread the wealth around and, and carry a few or, or do you have, do you have a favorite that if you're going out in the grouse woods or how do you, how do you pick one art? Well, you know, things happen over time. Uh, Things get heavier than they used to be. And as you get a little older, you, uh, there's less emphasis on having to connect every time. But, uh, I finally gravitated to, to the 28 gauge. Got a 20 for a good long time. I have a little uh, PHE 20 that I shot a good many birds with. And then so happened, I happened to be in the state of Georgia with an elderly gentleman who was a Parker collector. 
and sitting around a table one lunchtime having uh, fried chicken and uh, and the fixins, I mentioned to him how great it would be if I could own a 28 gauge. Having looked at a lot of guns in his cabinet and him telling me that the ones that I really mostly interested in were not for sale. Um, he spoke to his wife and he said, Ruby, he said, would you go in and get that gun under my bed? And subsequently, Ruby brought out a 28 gauge Parker ski gun. And that was my undoing. Uh, it, it went home with me and, uh, that's the gun that I, that I carry all the time now. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite light. It's open chokes and it's got all the best, all the bells and whistles. It, it would be a gun that, you know, a lot of people would hunt far and wide to find, but I enjoy, I enjoy hunting with it all the time. Cool. So, so we've got one, we've got one that came home with a, with a cocker spaniel. We, you found one, you found one up. Springer the spaniel. A Springer spaniel. And yeah. then you found another one. Was it the rafters or was it underneath the floor? No, it was, it was up in the, uh, is up in the floor joists. It was, you up know, sometimes joists. if you're looking up at the floor joists in a basement and you see some laths that would be crossover, just tacked on it. It tucked this 12 gauge, uh, number two frame Parker up over these little lays that were up there. It was just, it was just sitting up between the joists <laughs> and, uh, he hauled it down and, uh, and, uh, I still have that gun. Um, and, 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 and now the most recent story that you entertained us with is from underneath some guy's bed. I just want to know, where is the next one going to come from? You know, it's something <laughs> I could, I could tell you, um, I could tell you, uh, where there are a number of special guns, but, uh, I, I have acquired another gun or two along the way and they're special guns, but the, you know, for me to own another gun, it would have to fall out of the sky. I mean, I, I don't need another gun at all. Yeah. And, and my wife would uh, back that up considerably, but uh, it would have to be something special. And uh, the uh, the uh, you know some guns they will they sit with owners for a very long time, and then certain events in life change where they will part with it. And, uh, once in a while, once in a while you happen to be in the right place. And, uh, and, and that's, that's what's happened to me. You know, I, I've been in the right place at the right time. Um, so yeah, I'm, I suppose there'll always be another gun, but I think this, the storied guns, uh, are, are some of the greatest ones to own. Um, they're, 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 they're just special. You know, Certainly. like a friend of mine said, uh, yeah, I got a call from a gun dealer up in up in New Jersey that I know pretty well, and he was trying to ask me about a, a Model 32 that was Remington built for years, and he said I took in a 20 gauge Model 32, 
And I said, I'm, I'm afraid that, uh, that's, that's, that's an imposter. Somebody did something to put barrels on that. Cause th- we never, we never built a 32 and 20 gauge. <laughs> and his response to me was, well, it's just another gun then. So, I mean, that's the category. Is it just another gun or is it a special gun? Does, yeah. does it, does it mean something to you? And I think that has value. It has value to a lot of folks, whether it's dad's gun or an uncle's gun, a family gun, or or was it procured under special circumstances? Did it did it uh afford you the opportunity to to do things that you had not done? Uh, had you great success with a gun? A- any number of those things can make a gun pretty special. Yeah. Yeah, so the the storied gun and the gun that one acquires while being in the right place at the right time is certainly the kind of the dream scenario. But all right, let's say there's somebody listening to this that maybe a, a younger man or woman that's getting into bird hunting and, and they have been struck with this affliction of vintage double guns and they were looking to acquire their first one, be it a Parker or a Fox or a Lefebvre or L.C. Smith. Do you have any advice as to how one might go about acquiring one? Where would, where would you start? I think, I think the starting point is the pocketbook. You know, how, how deep is the pocketbook? And, and how, how uh, interested you are in, in various models. Because you can obtain some delightful little side-by-sides, if that's what's on your mind. Um, SKB makes a, or made a very nice little side-by-side. And there are any number of them out there. They can, they can be Spanish, Italian, uh, or they could be the well-known double, make, uh, double guns of, like you say, Smith, Lefevre. Uh, Ithaca, um, y- you know, t- in today's world, the magic of the internet is probably a great starting point. You yeah. can you can look at uh, GunBroker.com or Guns America, uh, and there are many opportunities to buy uh, a decent gun, and that will do the job. But if and as you walk up that, uh, you walk up those stairs to price, condition, uh, rarity. Uh, you can spend all kinds of money um, on guns that they made only a few of. To give you an example, I mean, you're probably talking about uh, maybe 1,800 guns and 28 gauge that Parker ever built. Wow, and and you're talking about even maybe a similar number for four tens, twenty gauges, you know, certainly dwarfed the twelves. So in the whole scheme of things, the small gauge guns were were manufactured at fewer quantities because in those times it, it it basically duck hunting. Uh, with a 12 gauge gun was probably prevalent that that was the big that was the big demand 
and then you know up duck clubs up and down the east coast in the center part of the country up around the great lakes you know the, the those 12 gauge guns and, and to some degree you know maybe eight gauge or 10 gauge but certainly the 12 dominated everything and and you find if huge number of those guns out there and some are delightful guns they're they're beautiful guns but an event happened in history that changed the course and that was the advent of steel shot Hmm. Uh, that that made a significant impact on the use of 12 gauge guns uh, for duck hunting or side-by-side guns for duck hunting and it also changed the dynamics uh, elsewhere elsewhere you know, for example, sometimes on federal reserves and whatnot, even shooting upland birds, you've got to use some steel shots. So yeah. I think there's a pretty, pretty fair demand for 20 and 28 gauge guns. Uh, did I recently read a story that you wrote about art that involved uh, a broken stock on a Parker gun? Was that in the Rough Grouse Society magazine? Yes, it was. Yes. Mm-hmm. Why don't you why don't you remind me and and uh, enlighten the listeners a little bit on that story? Because I remember it being kind of an entertaining story. Well, <laughs> yes, I talked a little bit about a very good friend of mine that had uh, a nice Parker shotgun that uh, he uh, he tripped in the woods and or slipped and uh, on his way down. I'm sure many of your listeners have had a have at times slipped in the woods and, and you're trying your darndest not to fall on the gun. You'll either thrust it to your right or forward and, and fall down. But in this case, he couldn't do that. He was caught up in the thicket and he put most of his weight on the wrist of that, that Parker shotgun and broke it right at the wrist. But all in the process, he broke his front tooth to go along with it. So he, he had a bad day. He had a bad day. And, uh, and, uh, but what was he more upset about the tooth or the gun? Well, I'm not sure. I th- I think <laughs> he was probably more concerned with the gun because he knew where the dentist was, <laughs> you know, but yeah, he knew where the dentist was. And I, and I pointed out a couple of situations in there where I'd seen broken stocks and, and, uh, but uh, interesting enough, uh, it, it was repaired. There was a steel bolt put in it, and it, and it was repaired. And uh, there are a good many times when you break a stock, split a stock, chip a stock, do anything to it, that it can be repaired very, very well. Uh, it's certainly very disheartening at the time, and if it's a fine gun, it can be very upsetting. But... Uh, I've been fortunate enough to know uh, some people out there that are true artisans that can, that are as good as a furniture repair man would be and can put a stock back in, in, in a, in a way that you can't tell it was repaired. Yeah. So there, there's hope. There's hope to, to, re, to really put something back on some expensive guns. I've seen, Guns that look like in terrible shape, and uh, we're able to put them back together. Splintered. Sometimes they almost have to come up with other wood pieces to uh, to fill in some of the splinters and whatnot. But they're capable of doing it now. 
and uh, you know might be a little pricey at times, but sure. the the craftsmanship is unbelievable. And I yes, happen to know of a, a, a young man out in in Missouri. Uh, his name is Brian Board. He's probably the best that I've ever seen. And uh, I have a Parker twenty eight gauge shotgun that. Uh, through no fault of somebody, but tightening the screws on the tang, uh, over-tightening them and messing with the screws uh, left them out of alignment. And Mm -hmm. a Parker shotgun always had the screws north-south. They were always indexed correctly. And subsequently, he was able to go back in there and you know, fix those holes and do everything you and uh, straighten them right out. But that's pretty minor stuff. I mean, he can he can do wonders. He can do wonders with a piece of wood. Spectacular stuff. So have you, it's have unfortunate, you any... but part of the game. Yeah, yeah. Have you had any? Have you had any any of the the guns restocked, or are you pretty adamant keeping them keeping them original if if at all possible? Oh, you know. Um, I think it's part of the budget. You know, you sure. one thing you have to, have to be aware of that uh, a lot of the early guns uh, had a lot of drop at the heel. That's yes. the way they built them, and that's the way shooters were accustomed to shooting them. They didn't necessarily bring their cheek down on the comb of the stock, but they tended to look look straight over the barrels in a in a head erect kind of position so they got accustomed to shooting that way and it's 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 not it's possible for a guy just to get uh just get familiar with shooting the gun that way but today's Mm -hmm. dimensions you know probably the most common dimensions is you know an inch and a half at the comb and an inch and uh two and a half at the heel so the closer you can get that to get to those dimensions probably that's closest it will fit most people so let's say you find a gun with with dimensions that you can't shoot uh the chances are you'd probably have to put a stock on it or or live with it the way it is learn to shoot it yeah well that's a lot about that's a lot about guns all right let's let's transition a little bit and i'm sure we'll we'll mention them again but Tell me a little bit about the old Pat Society because I'm not too familiar. I, you know, I've heard of things like the Loyal Order of Dedicated Grouse Hunters and, mm-hmm. and a few other things, but but the old Pat Society that because that is that's one of the focuses of of your book Grouse Country. And so w- give us a little history lesson there. It's a bad bunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could have figured that much. It's a bad bunch. Uh, it, uh, well, it, we've hunted together probably somewhere between 40, 50 years. A lot of us, some a little less have, have become a part of the group. And, uh, we've hunted in many different venues from Wisconsin, Maine, Michigan. Uh, we gather every fall and, uh, not usually hundred percent attendance. Some people have to work for a living. And, uh, and, uh, we, uh, we really enjoy ourselves. We kill a few birds, some of the, the, the ones that are not too smart. And we have some wonderful food and a little libation, tell a lot of good stories. 
and probably we like each other for the great friendship and that's part of it all Uh, the story began in about 1979 Uh, a group of us uh, from Remington primarily were hunting in uh, in Minnesota or actually Wisconsin and uh, we had done this a couple of years and uh, somebody said well what do we call ourselves and one of the guys' father said, why, we're the old Pat Society. And it stuck. That, that's kind of the way it works. We, we don't have a, a, a big group. We're pretty selective. And uh, we have a tremendous camaraderie. Uh, uh, many of us have worked together for years, and others not. Others, uh, a, a lot of guys have brought their sons into it. And, uh, you know, it's a forum for talking guns and dogs and cooking and libation. And, uh, it's, it's just a time we look forward to uh, every year and it's a hunting group. We don't have a club, but, uh, it, all year long, we look forward to getting together. As a matter of fact, uh, next week, there are a few of us going to get together in Ohio on a, on a one of the one of the members out there belongs to a pheasant club, and we're going to get together for a couple of three days, shoot some sporting clays, and and cook some good food, and have a, a little libation, and tell some old stories, and and we've been getting ready for two weeks. Uh, for what reason I don't know, but it seems like the most important thing on the agenda. So it's it's. It, you know, I, I think it's part of it all. I think if you can hunt with a bunch of good guys that you really like, um, and most of these guys uh, fit the mold of if you ask for help or ask them to do something for you, it's like putting money in the bank. And I mean, they're that kind of that that kind of guys. They're, they're first rate, top shelf, going to do exactly what they tell you, and uh, we just know each other for a very long time. So it's a it's a fun experience. It's made bird hunting so much better to have to do that every year. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's really kind of amazing. It's one of the one of the really neat things about hunting is the traditions that just sort of naturally develop. I've I've you know there are there are stories of of hunting camps of old that have you know and deer hunting is deer hunting lends itself to that long-standing tradition exactly exactly same same kind of thing same kind of camaraderie yeah. Yeah. and and it's, a few of us like will said, uh yep a few no, of us I will do say, like you like you said it, it it makes it very special go ahead Art. oh it does I, I you know a few of us will uh will do a, a separate little hunt we go up to canada for up the miramichi valley for three days and shoot woodcock uh and uh like I say, everybody's lives goes in different directions. And some years, some folks can attend, and other years they can't. But it uh, it continues. I I would say that the hills are a little higher and the holes are a little deeper these days. But but uh, the fun is still there. <laughs> yeah. So the so the book Grouse Country. Hmm. How how did that how did that 
come together? Are you a are you a an avid you know? Do you journal your hunts? Do you do you did you store all of these recollections in some place, or did you just sort of reflect back and and piece things together? How did the book come together? Well, on a lark, probably about eight nine years ago, um, I started. I, I tried to write a column for RGS magazine and uh, I'm no writer. Hell, I, I just have been to a lot of places and, and shot at a lot of birds. So I tried to do a little writing for RGS magazine and uh, subsequently they accepted uh, some of my articles and over time, the, the subject matter and the tenor and tone and, style grew and uh, at some point in time somebody said well why don't you write a book and i said oh no i mean i'm never gonna write a book um so uh you know that's what that's what started it all and so I, i i accumulated a fair number of these articles and then i had some unpublished articles uh that for one reason or another that I didn't think would be expected. Oh, I put the pieces together. Uh, but, but the content of the book focuses primarily on the times, on the, the times and the stories and the things that we have done or I have done or uh, with other people over a lot of years uh, in the covers. And I particularly spent more time telling those stories than trying to do the traditional, what we used to call whack and stack stories. In other words, Hmm. the dog's on point, I shot the bird, and it was a great day. But the the stories of mine are are a lot of those uh, intimate little things that have happened to us over the years. We've had a great great uh deal of one group scanning scamming somebody else and and the book is full of those kind of things as well as some very serious little things um so it's it's not a how-to book at all but i i would hope that in the end if somebody reads the book it would stir their memories to to remember fondly some of some of their own adventures um you know, there there are stories in there. One is simply called uh, Sparky, where we all decided that one year we would have a little contest to see who would shoot the heaviest woodcock. So the the problem started with trying to find a scale that you could weigh a woodcock, <laughs> and uh, and that in itself was a, was a chore because all we could find is a postal scale or a grocery scale or something, but you needed something that could measure grams. You know, they're pretty small bird, so we wound up with some of this old, ugly old kind of a meat scale or postal scale that seemed to be able to give us enough enough uh, difference in the birds. So we started out weighing the birds every every evening. So one fella comes in with a bird uh, on the first day that weighs eight eight grams or eight ounces, and uh, and this goes on all week. And then somebody comes in one with eight two, and 
seven nine, and you know all week. And and the guy that that shot the first bird by the end of the week is looking pretty tall. Like he got <laughs> he got the biggest bird right out of the chute. And then as we're wrapping it up on the last evening, and all the birds are in, and the weights are done, and nothing seems to have eclipsed this uh, this great bird that was shot on a, in the early in the week. A couple of the boys came in and say, hey, hey, he said, uh, hold on a minute. He says, well, we got a pretty good specimen here. Uh, took him this afternoon, and uh, I think he's a, he's a pretty good, strong candidate. So they bring in this bird, and we put it on the scale, and oh, my word, it looks like it's going to be the clear winner. You know, it's over nine ounces or whatever the, whatever I remember the, the weight was, and and also, you know, everybody's congratulating the the new uh, the new entrant, and uh, the original guy is saying to himself, "Rats," you know. And I began to look at this bird carefully, and I said, "Something wrong with this bird." And uh, I didn't know whether it had a disease or you know maybe it was aff- afflicted with something, but it was a lot of red redness around its uh worm dispenser and uh gee i I started to pull uh pull it apart a little bit and as the more i pulled pulled him apart the more i could see this little shiny peat in there and uh after a little more maneuvering i pull out a champion spark plug that they had (laughs) stuffed in him (laughs) so so the clear winner was an imposter, if you will. Yep. Uh, yep. I know what you mean by uh, by saying that it was a bad bunch, those guys that you hang out with. It is a bad bunch. And other <laughs> stories go on and on about that. You know, one day, one year, they had substituted a, a uh, concrete Dalmatian in my dog kennel. And I carried <laughs> that around for the first cover. So there's a, there's a lot of stories in there uh, similar, similarly like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's, those are, those are personally, you know, I, when I sit back and crack open a book, you know, the stories are really what I enjoy. I think it's, you know, storytelling is in our nature and, and, and there's, you know, I think through a good story, you can also learn, you know, you can also learn about, about the grouse. And so you, you mentioned that it's, you know, it's not a how to book, but, but I, the, the stories, the traditions, the, the groups of, of people that, that get together and, and spend time together every year, those are the kind of things that, that are really interesting to me. So I, I I'm sure others will, will find that as well. So that's the book is grouse country, uh, gunning with the old Pat society and, and where, where can people find it if they're interested in it? Well, it's a big, it's a well-kept secret, but uh, I've still got a few of them. And uh, you can send me an email at artperiodwheaton.com and okay. at gmail.com. At gmail.com, and, uh, okay. Yeah, artperiodwheaton at gmail.com. And I have two varieties. I have uh, one edition, which is a, has a regular dust jacket. And uh, then I have a limited edition of 300 only that uh, uh, have the uh, slip cover and marker ribbon and are inscribed. Uh, those are $75, and the regular edition are $50. But you can send me an email, and I'll send them an order form, and I'll be glad to fill it promptly. 
Uh, I don't have any maps in there, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think readers might enjoy the book, and uh, uh, we've had a lot of fun telling those stories, and it's only part of what we've done, so it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, well, I think we, I think people. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was I was going to tell you one little aspect of our old Pat's hunts every year is we have the adult version of Bring and Brag. And uh, we tend to gather for dinner. And after dinner, everybody will bring out their guns, uh, some that they've procured in the past year or some they've never shown us. And uh, we pass them around and ooh and ah and tell the stories how we acquired them and whatever small trivia details we have. Uh, One year... Uh, one of our members uh, was bringing his grandson and his grandson uh, insisted that he bring along the the fever shotgun that was his. But when he got to the old Pat's hunt, uh, his grandfather told him that he mistakenly had forgotten it. And you never saw such a long face in your life. But subsequently, as we were having the gun show, there was a package mysteriously appeared on the, on the table with his name on it. And one of the gentlemen said, and his name happened to be Parker. And he said, Parker, hey, there's a gun here with your name on it. And Parker said, I don't, I don't have a gun here. And he says, I don't know. He says, it's got your name on it. So Parker went over and uh, un- unwrapped a Parker shotgun that his grandfather gave to him. So that was a pretty big event that year. Now, is this the Parker that I know? This is Parker Havel. Ah, okay. Yeah, that is the Parker that I know. Jerry, I, Jerry, uh, he he had he told me not quite exactly that version of the story, but he mentioned something about that, and uh, I know uh, I know Parker treasures that gun to this day. That's for sure. Oh, it was, it was a pretty big deal. It was a, a very big deal. He uh, not only was it a giant surprise, but he spent the next two days calling his mom. He was so excited about being on the hunt and, and, and getting that gun. But that's one of the stories that lasts a lifetime. Yeah. And it goes way beyond the birds that he shot. Yes. Pretty pretty special yep. to a young man, you know. Yep. So, so since we're since we are on the the topic of uh, Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, I guess we didn't necessarily make that connection for the listeners. But Parker Havel is is the son of Jerry Havel, who owns owns and operates Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. And Art, I wanted to ask you about Pine Ridge Grouse Camp because I know you've been there, and and uh, we won't we won't go into too much detail because the last episode of the podcast I interviewed Jerry, but but. In the intro to this episode, we are planning to uh, to announce the winner uh, of of the guided uh, trip to Pinehurst Grouse Camp. Somebody's going to win a trip there, and oh, you've that's been terrific. there. So yeah, yeah, and you've been there, and you 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 know what it's all about. So why don't you why don't you you tell speak to the lucky winner what the what they can expect to find at Pinehurst Grouse Camp? Well, I think that the 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 value of the experience at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp is the c- tremendous camaraderie of kindred spirits. Yeah. Everybody there is a grouse hunter and uh the the whole uh atmosphere is filled with grouse talk and camaraderie and fun. 
uh, you're not going to find anybody carrying your bags and kowtowing to you, but you're going to be one of the, one of the gangs. <clears throat> you're going to have great food uh, in a, in a great climate and everybody's talking grouse and talking bird dogs and guns. And it's a, it's an extremely comfortable climate. They've got great areas that, that Jerry and Parker hunt and Randy. Um, but I've been to that camp many times, many times. And before it even became uh pine Ridge grouse camp, but it's uh, it's built with a, or it's conducts itself with just a way of making you feel very comfortable from when you arrive to when you leave. Yes, absolutely. Okay, Art. Well, what one last thing, kind of a kind of a parting shot, as we we certainly hope that we that we've got a lot of younger, sort of newer upland hunters listening to this podcast and. And given your given your experiences and and you know the time that you've spent in the woods over the years, what what sort of advice or or you know just sort of parting thoughts would you give to somebody that is that is just getting into upland hunting and and you know sort of what lies ahead of them if they continue in this pursuit? Well, I probably would take it from a couple of perspectives. I, I think for for those of us that are elder statements or statesmen though, that have been around it for some time, we have a responsibility and one, and that responsibility is to mentor, if you will, some of those younger folks to bring them in, show them the way, the true way to, to do it, to enjoy it. And, uh, I, I think that's, that's terribly important. Um, I, I do it often myself is to bring somebody along and expose them to it. And, uh, you know, to, to, to the younger folks that are just getting into it, it's important that they get connected. They get connected to the folks that have been around the game for some time. And, uh, and, and I think that it's addictive and you will learn a great deal by being around other folks. Yes, indeed. Indeed, Art. Well, I, I really appreciate you jumping on the Project Upland podcast with us. It was awesome. I will remind the listeners one more time, your book, Grouse Country, Gunning with the Old Pat Society, is available. I, I was able to find it via a Google search, but but for the listeners, if anybody's interested, please uh, send Art an email, art.wheaton at gmail.com. If they have, a, they have any questions about that, they can always get a hold of us at Project Upland, and we'll, we will send them your way. But Art, thank you again. I really appreciate it, and hopefully uh, I'll see you out at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp maybe this fall. Oh, that would be terrific. Be enjoy visiting with you. So you, t- you take care, and uh, listen, if you, uh, if you get overrun with grouse, uh, by all means, call. I'll come running. I I will I will do that, Art. You'll be one of the first okay. I call if, if I need a hand. You can bring okay. some of those Parker shotguns with you. Okay, you take care. Nice visiting with you. All right, thank you, Art. Have a great day. You bet. Hey, everybody. Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Just wanted to take a second to thank you again for listening to this episode of the show and remind you that, as always, we are brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Krause Camp. As always, we appreciate your feedback. Please don't hesitate to contact us via projectupland.com 
or by emailing me directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.